This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 10th of June 2021. And people in Victoria and also the rest of the country were presumably very relieved to hear yesterday that restrictions are going to start to ease from tonight in um, both Metro Melbourne and the greater part of Victoria. And of course, we know that this lockdown was sparked by a hotel quarantine leak of the Kappa variant, which is one of the Indian variants of coronavirus. But then there's also the Delta variant, which we're hearing a lot about because unlike in Australia, it seems to be coming, be becoming one of the most dominant strains in other countries, not just in India. Yeah, so there were two, there's basically two, there are quite a few clusters in Victoria, but one of the clusters is this Delta strain, uh, the 617.2, which has also appeared in a small outbreak in, the, in New South Wales. Yeah, so the uh, data are now that Delta is now the dominant strain in the UK. I think 60% of all genomes are coming up with the 617.2. Only a few months ago, it was the B117, which is now called the alpha strain that we were calling it the UK strain for a while there. And it had felt like it had taken over everywhere. It's flipped so quickly. Yep. Well, it's now the dominant, you know, it's been the dominant strain in the United States for quite some time. So the 117 is, um, it's increased transmissibility over the Wuhan virus, really muscled everything else out. But now it looks as though the um, 617 variants, the Indian variants are muscling out the 117. And it looks as though it might be surging the Delta variant in the United States. CDC have yet to update their data, but a report from National Public Radio suggests that uh, 6% of all infections are now 617.2, the Delta, and on the West Coast of the United States, already 18%. This is worrying because even though there's a high level of immunisation in the United States, and they're really working hard to get it even higher, you will find people who've been immunised with Pfizer or Moderna who will get infected, but hopefully not severely and hopefully with less transmissibility. But you could see another surge, another wave in the United States, and you could see it in the UK as well as they lift their restrictions. What do we know about how well the vaccines that we've got at the moment protect against this Delta variant? It's all landing on the same kind of spot, which is the first dose is lower in its efficacy and or effectiveness, I should say, than the previous var- variants, particularly 117, and that it returns to almost normal, but a little bit reduced after the second dose, and that's of both Astra and Pfizer. So the Astra turns out to be about 60% effective in reducing all you know, symptomatic disease, um, higher for severe disease, and Pfizer about 80% effective in reducing symptomatic disease with 617.2. So they both returned to where they were before. Uh, The Astra is a little bit disappointing. We were expecting a higher degree of efficacy overall than um, we were promised with the trials, which were saying you could get up to maybe 85%, but the real world seems to be at around about 60%, which is not that far off the clinical trial data with four weeks. However, some immunologists and infectious disease specialists are arguing that there's a slow burn with Astra and that the way it actually generates the immune response is that if you measure it Soon after the second dose, it registers with that sort of number, but it grows over time, and that's the theory there. Also, there aren't enough data yet, really, with Astra to be sure because of the 12-week gap between doses. So that's a, that's a watching case, but it certainly reduces 
the, the symptoms that you get with, with this and almost certainly infection of any kind and transmissibility. And what that really means is we just need more people vaccinated to achieve that good coverage that stops the virus from spreading unchecked throughout the community. And of course, further down the track, vaccines that are adapted to deal specifically with whatever dominant variant there is that's circulating. Yeah. And the Sanger Institute in Britain, which is a leading genomics institute, which has been heavily involved in COVID, they've done a a reanalysis of the data or a current analysis of the data, and they think that the Delta is actually 80% more transmissible than the 117. Um, and they use various data there about the increased infectivity per day and also the generation time. How, you know, how, how long does it take on average for a person who's infected to transmit to somebody else? And they reckon it's about five and a half days. Remember, we were having this debate about 24 to 48 hours. They reckon it's five and a half days, which is a bit shorter. And they combining all that, they think it's about 80% more transmissible. And the kappa is about 40% more transmissible than those data. So... Both the Kappa and the Delta with the Sanger Institute data are significantly more transmissible and probably more transmissible than we've been quoting here. So we've seen these strains sort of come and go so quickly over these past few months. And we know that a real challenge with vaccinating against influenza is forecasting which strain is going to be dominant in the coming flu season so that you've got a vaccine that's able to protect against it. Once we have better global vaccination coverage against COVID, will this slow down and become a more predictable thing? Or is this the rate that we need to be prepared for for some time? It depends on what happens in low-income countries with poor resources who are not getting the vaccine and what happens to the pandemic there. That's where new variants will emerge from. So we can protect ourselves uh, to a significant extent We may well need boosters. So, for example, there's more and more evidence that a Pfizer booster over Astra is actually better than two Pfizers. And we'll talk about that data as it becomes clearer. So a booster later on in the year will help us. But we are going to lift our borders uh, at some point. We have to. And those variants from low-income countries will come in. And we have to do all we can as a nation selfishly as well as for humanitarian reasons, to get low-income countries immunised as quickly as possible. And we're also working hard at trying to vaccinate ourselves within Australia and different states have different rules now about who is and isn't eligible for vaccines. There doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason to it, at least from where I'm sitting, Norman, which states are vaccinating younger people with Pfizer now and others are still sort of keeping it to older age groups. I have to say that New South Wales has probably got it closer to being right than other states. You say that because you're from New South Wales. Well, you, in my defence, last year on Coronacast, we talked about this a lot, about what should be the vaccine strategy. And we, we you know, supported by sources who know what they're talking about, argued that really the primary uh, strategy should be getting Pfizer to the borders and then coming back from the borders really on a layered approach, making sure that all vulnerable people who are liable to get it and spread to others are covered with Pfizer, not so much because it's more effective or the clot issue, which really hadn't emerged at that point, but because within three weeks, you're done and dusted. So that's, in a sense, what New South Wales is doing. So they're they're doing hotel quarantine, they're doing uh, uh, border workers, they've kind of done that, don't know what, to what extent. Then they're doing healthcare workers. Now, largely, healthcare workers in New South Wales, regardless of age, are getting Pfizer. 
But what they're doing then, which is also something that we spoke about on Coronacast, is that they are immunising their households, their households with Pfizer. So you could be 80 years old and living in a household with somebody who's a healthcare worker and you will get Pfizer. And that's about really a layered approach to protection. And that's exactly the right approach. What I find curious and unanswered is, is New South Wales somehow getting more Pfizer than any other state to be able to do that? Because also while they've been doing that, other states are only just recently, in the last week or so, saying that 40-year-olds can come forward or 30-year-olds plus can come forward for Pfizer. That's been this case for weeks in New South Wales, where if you've been between 40 and 50, you phone up and you get a Pfizer very quickly. So something's odd about the variation. So I think that Northern Territory moving down to 16 years old, we have to move down to 12 years old if we want to get herd immunity, and we have to get as many doses as possible as quickly as possible into people's arms and protect those layers. And um, and of course, aged care was is a significant vulnerability, not just the people there, but the aged care staff, is, and that's who bring it in. I know that in Australia we have this real sense of fairness and the, the, this idea that we want to have a fair go and that we should be prioritising people or that there should be a queue around these sorts of things. But I wonder whether maybe there's a counter-argument that if you can get to a place and get a vaccine, then just get it because the more people we get through now, the more resources we have later for the people who turn up later. Just like that it's just a numbers game. That's right. There's no point in a vaccination centre having Pfizer over at the end of the day and throwing it in the bucket. You should put it in somebody's arm. And that, again, has been the case in New South Wales for a while, is that if you're prepared to sit around, you know, to hang around, you pr- can probably get some Pfizer at the end of the day um, in one of these high-throughput clinics. But I've heard stories where they're so rigid in some states that they will not put you, they will not give you Pfizer, and presumably they'd rather throw it out. So one, you you have to wonder what is actually going on because once you've diluted the Pfizer, you've got to use it within a set period of time. And not on Pfizer, but on AstraZeneca, our other vaccine that we have in Australia for people over fifty. We talked very briefly about it yesterday, Norman, but there's really some interesting evidence from Germany that with better detection and better treatment, this rare blood clot uh, is much less deadly than was uh, initially understood. Yes. And so it's from the same group, I think, that uh, did the, the, the major work in Germany exposing what this syndrome actually is. And they're finding, just like Australia, their mortality rate is nowhere near what it was at the beginning. And I think what's emerging is, and this is partly anecdotal, so I'm not sure it's really been published yet, is that not only is the clotting risk higher under 50, but the risk of severe disease is also um, greater under 50. So there's a double whammy there if you're under 50. And so if you're over 50, not only is it less common, it's less severe. So I think that the lower mortality rate is probably a combination of earlier detection, better treatment, and the fact that people who are getting it are over 50, and therefore it's a less severe disease. And it also means that if you're thinking about getting Astra under 50, you know, maybe you should just hang on to get the Pfizer just with that increased risk of severe disease, even though it's incredibly rare. So we've got it right in Australia then, you say? I think so. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. We'll be back tomorrow answering your questions. Of course, if you've got one, send it to abc.net.au slash coronacast. We'll see you then. See you then.